Thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us and showing us the way of salvation through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Teach us through this word that we've heard and equip us for every good work, for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Uh, well, less than one lifetime ago, Christian values were seen by the broader society as to be the good values, the moral values in society. And the non-Christian values were bad. But now things have changed. Christian values and the ethics that the Bible holds out for believers are seen by some people in the society, not all people, but some, as bad. Perhaps a loud minority would even go as far to say that Christian values are dangerous for some people. You see, as we go to work, university, schools, hang out with friends, turn on TV, we are hit with ideas of what ethical living is really about. And perhaps now more than ever, these ideas from our TV, from our friends and so on, are hitting up with what the Bible teaches of what ethics for life are to be. Uh, at Christ Our Refuge, this newly forming church community, uh, we believe the Bible is God's word and that the Bible is true. And I would hazard a guess for us here today, you don't need to be reminded of that, that God's word, the Bible is written for us and it is truth for all people. But many of us in this room need to be reminded that not only is God's word true, but God's word, the Bible, is also good. It's truth and good for mankind. You see, the gospel itself literally means good news. Uh, the good news that God saves sinners through the perfect life, sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection of King Jesus. Uh, for those who have heard the Ephesians talks or listened to the podcast, we've seen in Ephesians chapter 1, the good news that God has raised believers up in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, he has taken people who are dead in sins to be alive with Christ. Now, this is such good news. And it's good news for our salvation, but it's also good news for our instruction in life. It's good news for human flourishing. It's good news for our marriages, good news for our families, for our workplaces. You see, it's God's world. He created it, and so we live in it by his word. He knows what is good. Sadly, some people, and even more sadly, some churches, when, they, when the Bible doesn't fit up with the world's ideas of living, they, they step back. They step away from the Bible's teachings standing over the Bible, critiquing it rather than letting the Bible critique our lives. Perhaps they say it was true for the first century, but th times have changed. We've gotten a lot smarter. Uh, it's no longer relevant, no longer truth, no longer good in the 21st century. You see, if you're familiar with the Bible, we could read of the first account of sin. As sin entered into the world, human beings' rebellion against God it was really a failure for God's people to trust that God's word is true and that God's word is good for them. Rather, we as the people of God, rather than sitting over the top of the Bible and critiquing it, we actually need the Bible to sit over the top of us and critique our lives as we should live as followers of Christ. We need to tremble at God's word, see that it is good for us, and we need to be unapologetic that it is true, and that it is good for mankind.
See, in the second half of the book of Ephesians, we read that the Apostle Paul writes this letter to a city in Ephesus, uh, spelling out instructions for Christians in various circumstances in which believers should submit to one another through reverence to Christ. And if you're not already aware, these New Testament letters, like the book of Ephesians, uh, so, so such as this one, would have been read out loud in the city. And it would have been a, a newly forming church community with someone at the front, like myself here, opening up the letter from the Apostle Paul, where there would have been Jewish people, Gentile people, men and women gathered in a room, not dissimilar to this, this perhaps with less weights there, hearing from the Apostle Paul. They would have heard the miraculous news of their salvation, of God's plan for all people to be blessed in Christ through faith in Jesus, that through Jesus' death and resurrection, they can be made right with God. Though they didn't have chapter numbers back then, by the time they got to what Tara read out a moment ago in, in Ephesians chapter 6, they, uh, when they arrived there, you could imagine the child in the room. Not too hard for us to imagine with children in the room. Imagine the child playing in the dirt with wooden toys, hearing those words from chapter, chapter 6 verse 1. The Apostle Paul is addressing me, a child. Imagine the parents in the room. The Apostle Paul is talking to me. I better sit up straight. Imagine the bond servants, of whom we're usually not given an audience by many. Wow, the Apostle Paul is talking to me. Imagine the masters hearing verse 9. Watch out, the Apostle Paul has something to say to me. It's quite a beautiful picture. And this afternoon, as, as we gather uh, in, in a hall, hearing from the P Apostle Paul's letter uh, from, um, to the Ephesians, we're going to address all these people that I've just listed out, children, parents, bondservants, and masters, under two big questions. The first question is, how is God's word good for families? And the second question is, how is God's word good for work? The first question, keep your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 6, is how is God's word good for families? In verse 1, we read children. So, youth kids, youth and kids at the back, Ears open, this is for you. Uh, the Apostle Paul here is talking to children under their parents' care, living at their parents' house. He says to children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. You see, across the whole of the Bible, God cares about families. He makes promises to families and he cares for families. And there is an instruction here for children to obey their parents when they are under their care. And you can see an interesting quote there in, the, in, the, uh, in the verses 2 and 3. That's a quote going back to Exodus chapter 20 uh, in the Old Testament. And it's important for us to understand that at this point in salvation history, in Exodus chapter 20, uh, there were these temporal blessings and curses. If God's people followed God's law, they would experience blessed life in the land. And if they break God's law, they would experience the consequences for that. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament narrative, we read that God's people, Israel, fail to live up to God's law and they are driven out of the land and they are left wanting, left longing for the true blessings to come. And God is faithful. 
Despite all human beings' sin and rebellion, God fulfills his promise for land, offspring, and blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the new covenant that Christ ushered in, it's not a physical land on earth. It's not Brisbane, although Brisbane is beautiful, trust me, uh, but it's eternal life. And Paul is not teaching salvation by works here for children. If you obey your parents, you'll get eternal life. No, no, he's already taught us in Ephesians chapter 1 that through trusting in Jesus, all people are blessed in Christ. So therefore, the obedience of children is evidence that they trust Jesus, that they know God, that they've listened and heard to Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 3. And because they know Christ, they obey their parents, for it is for their good. See, sadly, some people, some parents, have taken this scripture and twisted it to allow parents to mistreat their children under their care. This cannot and should not happen. And if this is a part of your story, mistreated when you are under the care of your parents, please know, though trauma is real, you are not defined by this. Rather, you are defined as a child of God who offers refuge, security, and hope to all people in Christ. Likewise, there may be other situations where I actually think it is right for Christians to disobey their parents. Uh, we pray for the persecuted church often. Uh, Gregory prayed beautifully a moment ago for the persecuted church. And in those prayers, we can even hear something of the picture of the Christian child coming from a, a non-Christian family. At that point, it is right for the Christian child to disobey their parents, to follow the Lord. Because in those situations where the parents are not acting in the Lord, the children's loyalty to Christ comes first, however painful it might be. And likewise, there is application in the room for the many adults here who are grown-up children. Uh, we may not need to obey our parents like the children here addresses in verse 1, but there is a principle to honour our parents. And that might look different to different circumstances. That might look like a close proximity or it may look like a distant proximity. But there is a principle there to honour our parents. We continue with our question, how is God's word good for families? As we continue reading on in verse 4, we see the parents' role addressed. Paul addresses fathers. But commentators would suggest that fathers here uh, could be translated as fathers and mothers. Much like in other times when we see the New Testament, when they address as brothers, it could be brothers and sisters. This is really addressing fathers and mothers. And what that is all to say is that both parents, mothers and fathers, have a God-ordained role in the discipleship of their children. Verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, in particular the second half, Paul often gives up a negative to avoid and a positive to emulate. The negative, do not provoke your children to anger. The positive, but rather bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I love this because this verb here literally means to nourish or feed them. Uh, John Calvin, uh, one of the reformers, translates this verse to be, let them be fondly cherished and deal gently with them. It's a beautiful picture. But what does this look like? 
Well, I, I stand before you humbly to say that I have not raised the child. Uh, so I will not explain how to raise children. Uh, I've lent on other books and smarter people and parents uh, to learn from this. And I, I stumbled upon um, a fellow's teaching. Uh, his name is Richard Koken. He's a minister in, in the UK and he has five kids. Uh, so we can trust that he knows something about children. Uh, and he, in his uh, book, has three essential tips for parents as they raise up children. And, and the three tips are turn up, speak up and pray up. Firstly, turn up. It takes kids, oh, sorry, it takes a church to raise kids. So parents, turn up. Koken says, putting our kids under credible Bible teaching is far more valuable than swimming or sports lessons. See, at Christ Our Refuge, uh, we have a kids and youth ministry taking place before our service, and we hope that this will continue, continue to grow, and that one day, under God, we would have a thriving kids and youth ministry. If you're not already aware, this takes patience. It takes policies and procedures. It takes people to lead and lots of preparation. And it also takes parents. Parents are the key stakeholders in youth and kids' ministries. So I just want to thank you parents in the room who have turned up for your kids so far in this hall and upstairs as well. Keep doing that. And by way of application for uh, those of us who aren't parents to little children in this room, you will have a role in helping to raise the kids in this church. Perhaps to be a leader or to perhaps welcome children into our gathering, hear how their week has gone, to help and aid parents who may be struggling, juggling with the responsibilities of raising kids. So church, let's be a church that helps raise kids. Turn up. Then he says, second, it takes the gospel to raise kids, so speak up. Koken again says, let's talk about the kindness of God's forgiving grace. And not just about God's laws, including age-appropriate apologies to them for our own sins and errors. And it's important to share what we understand as well as what we find confusing about God's love. You see, hard times are when our kids are listening most carefully. Turn up, speak up. Third point from Richard, it takes God to raise kids, so pray up. You can pray for them every night, knowing that God loves them even more than you do. So we can resolve to enjoy parenting at every stage in all its exhausting complexity, confident that God will help us. So I hope that's an encouragement to the parents in the room. Turn up, speak up, and pray up. How is God's word good for families? You see, it's interesting, as I've preached through the second half of Ephesians, I've actually had to make a lot of apologies, a lot of, uh, make note a lot of sadnesses. Sadnesses in, in marriage, sadnesses in, in life, sadnesses in families, as I've just done. And in the midst of asking the question, how is God's word good? I want to remind us all that you don't judge God's goodness based on how sinful people do a good or a bad job of living that instruction out. I have a beautiful illustration from John Dixon, a Christian, uh, an Australian Christian historian who, whose work I commend to you. He has a very helpful illustration. He asks, is it right to judge a religion based on the actions of its 
adherence. Dixon talks about, can you judge a song based on the performance of a bad performance? Uh, think with me to the Bach Cello Suite. Perhaps you guys might know that one. It's one of the most beautiful suites in the world. Imagine if I brought a cello today and I tried to play Bach's Cello Suite. I would do a terrible job. I cannot play a musical instrument. Well, I can play the triangle, uh, but I can't play anything else. Now, it would be wrong to, for you to turn to your neighbor and say, man, that, uh, that Bach guy, terrible songwriter, but rather, it would be right for you to turn to your friend and say, man, Zach, terrible cello playist. You see, in musical terms, Ephesians chapter 6 holds up the most beautiful composition written by God for family life. It is a good composition, despite the sad fact that sometimes his followers don't always play in tune with God's teachings. It's interesting, publica, uh, so publica spelled P U B. L-I-C-A, if you're interested, is a Christian organization uh, looking for policy changes, uh, specifically focusing on improving families in Australia. They have found through research, quote, children do poorly when they experience maltreatment, are exposed to violence, have highly unstable caretaking arrangements, or grow up without the benefit of emotional closeness to a parent who sets appropriate boundaries and behavioral expectations end quote isn't it interesting those words that i've just heard the words i've just read out current modern psychology is now placing an emphasis on things and character traits that the bible has been teaching about for 2000 years that children are fragile and need the tenderness security and love that children need god's word because in God's word, we learn the good news of forgiveness, which says to a child, no matter what their age is, you are forgiven. You are secure. You have been treated better, more than you can ever understand in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are adopted into God's family who is closer to you than you could ever imagine. God's word is good for families. The second question we will ask is, how is God's word good for work? Well, God worked. Uh, in creation, he spoke the world into existence. In revelation, he has made himself known to us. He has spoken to us. He has worked in redemption. And in fact, he is working right now by his spirit. And let's have some guesses. It's going to get loud. How many hours, on average, do human beings work in one lifetime? It's more than 38. Have a guess. Shout out a number. More than 200. More than 200,000. No, it's, no, it's less than 200,000. There's a hint. A million. No, way less than a million. The answer is 90,000. You might be thinking, 89 to go. Uh, no, no. Now, God created work. Work is good. God cares about these 90 or so thousand hours that his people are working. And we see this in verses five to nine, as Paul addresses bondservants and masters. Now, despite huge differences in social context, there's actually lessons for us to learn today when it comes to work from these verses. But Bible tip 101, before we jump to application, we must first see the context of the original hearers. In casting your eyes to Ephesians chapter six, 
uh, we see the words bondservants, but in your translation, it may have the words slaves. We need to be careful here because slaves for us conjures up the picture of very terrible images of mistreatment of people. For example, the terrible slave trade centuries ago during the traders where they captured people from Africa and sold slaves to the Americas and the British Empire. Now, thankfully, due to great efforts, even from Christian people, such as William Wilberforce, that sadness was abolished, getting rid of the slave trade in the 19th century. But slaves in the New Testament are different. Slaves were not kidnapped. Rather, people voluntarily gave themselves as slaves to their masters to perhaps pay off a debt or even to advance in society. Slavery was not for an indefinite period, and slaves had rights. But to gain their freedom from their masters, someone else had to pay an amount of money on their behalf called a ransom price. The payment of the ransom price redeemed the slave, and they set them free from their masters and their debts. That's how redemption works in the New Testament times. And imagine with me the slave in the room, the bondservant in the room, hearing the words of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Let me read them out. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. Redemption, there's that word. Is it talking about redemption from their masters? No, no, it's talking about something far greater. You see, all people, because of their sin, are indebted to God. And we cannot pay that debt But Jesus pays our debts, giving himself a ransom for many at the cross so that we may have, as it says in verse 7, redemption through his blood. Slaves would have perhaps understood that more than the children in the room, more than the masters in the room, because there's that word, redemption. It's a beautiful word. Freedom from sin, Satan, and death. Their debt, our debt, paid in full by Jesus by giving himself ransom for many. That was on offer for them in the first century and it's on offer for each of us today in the 21st century. And because they have been ransomed at a price, they are to live differently. We continue to read in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ not by way of eye service as people pleases, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. You can see a negative to avoid again. Do not do the eye service as people pleases and the positive behavior for them to strive for is strive with a sincere heart people pleases sincere hearts the difference well in professional development days today if you've had a trainer come to work trying to get you to stop being a people pleaser and work with a sincere heart they may say get a better attitude better sleep better calendar organization maybe get a better job that will work But look closely in the Bible with me. In these verses that I've just read out, you can see in each four verses, Christ is mentioned. The difference between these behaviors is knowing 
Christ. Isn't that a good line for a mission statement? To know Christ. Verse 5, they are to be obedient to Christ. Verse 6, to to behave um, as um, bondservants of Christ. Verse 7, rendering service with a goodwill as to the Lord, who is Christ. Verse 8, knowing that they will receive back from the Lord. The slave's perspective has changed to be not self-centered, but Christ-centered in all things, which includes their work. And so too should ours. Some of us love our jobs here, but there are, there are days where we struggle. Mondays, perhaps. Some of us might not be in the job that we had wished for and a struggle every day. Some of us might have great bosses and some of us might have terrible bosses. What Paul is saying here, if you realize that you are actually serving Christ, then no matter what kind of earthly situation or master you are under, you will actually do have a great, loving, heavenly master. So you have a reason to work well, to work well for Christ, even when no one is watching, giving honor and glory to him. And to be clear, we have to say this in 2023, there are bosses that will take advantage of a good attitude worker. The Bible is not saying you should let your boss take advantage of you. No, no. There is a place for speaking up against being exploited. Rather, the lesson here for us is to realize that you should not just be serving the seen, but rather the unseen, serving Christ sincerely from the heart. At Christ Our Refuge, our mission is to know Christ, love the church, and serve the city. Uh, As Tara has shared, uh, we do that on Sundays as we gather as God's people. We do that at Daily Grace as we know God more and more through his word. We do that as home groups, gathering as as midweek communities. And we do this by living sent. To be live sent is to be sent out as the scattered people of God into the city of Brisbane, empowered by the Holy Spirit to care for this city's spiritual needs, physical needs, and cultural needs. Where? Well, in our schools, in our workplaces, our universities, our homes, networks, friends, communities, neighborhoods, and to the ends of the earth. And as we live sent, indeed, we know Christ in our workplaces, and it changes how we go about our work. Lastly, in verse 9, Paul turns briefly to masters. Verse 9 says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Isn't it remarkable to pause there and hear those words, no partiality. God sees no partiality. As such, no matter your station, no matter your job, though society places certain jobs higher and lower, God sees you equally. There is no partiality. You are highly important in God's eye, no matter your station, no matter your role. There are no second-class citizens in God's family. And whether you are working for the boss or you are the boss, if you are a Christian, we are all working for the master in heaven. And so if you are a master, have a leadership role in any way or capacity, the instruction here is do not be threatening. And do not show partiality, but rather care for those under you.
How is God's word good for work? Well, as we've guessed incorrectly, we work for 90,000 hours. God cares what you do in those hours. Some people love work. Some people hate it. Some workers wrongly make work their identity, careerism. Some workers pay eye service and live for the weekend. Some bosses are great. And sadly, some bosses use those 90,000 hours to threaten. Knowing Christ is good news for workers and bosses. Tim Keller says, The gospel frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves and secure our own identity through our work. You see, Ephesians remind us that your identity is secure in Christ. And your identity now can be on show at work for all people to see. You are able to see yourself and your situation in an entirely new light, to lift your eyes and to live in service of him. God's word is good for our work. To close, Ephesians remind us that knowing Christ changes everything. And because of this, when society's ideas of what are ethical, what instructions for living, if it butts up against the Bible's ideas, we are not shaken. But rather, we live differently. As children, as we relate to our parents, as parents, as they relate to their children, and as workers and bosses, as we relate to one another in a world that desperately needs to know Christ. Ephesians 6 reminds us that the victory of Jesus over the grave isn't just celebrated last weekend on the Easter weekend, isn't just celebrated and is on show right now as we gather on Sundays, but the victory of Jesus is on show every single day in the life of the believers as we go out into our workplaces, as we go out with our families, as we go out as a master, as a leader, so that we can live out God's word in our lives as we submit to Christ in all things for our good and the glory of God. I'm now going to close in prayer, praying for all of us, but specifically praying for families and for our work. Let's pray together. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, whose Son Jesus Christ shared at Nazareth the life of an earthly home, we ask that you may bless our homes. Help parents in this room to impart the knowledge of you and your love and children to respond with love and obedience and faith in Christ Jesus. May our homes be blessed with peace and joy. We pray for all who work and all who are seeking work in agriculture and farming, in mining, industry and commerce, in media and education, in health and social services, sport and the arts, in emergency services and defence forces. Enable us to fulfill our responsibilities with integrity and in faithful service to others, living and working in harmony and safety, using the fruits of our toil for the good of all, for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remind us this week that your word is both true and good news, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.